What's the best site in India? The Taj Mahal, the Golden Temple? For Rintwa, it's his market stall. Some years ago, he lost his sight and then his job. I'm Lisa from Specsavers and we help the Hope Foundation provide eye care in Kolkata. Rintwa was found to have cataracts. The charity performed surgery, which gave him his vision back. He regained confidence and returned to work. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. I'm Gary Cook, and you're listening to Trailblazers. Now, Eamon Coughlin was and is an icon, an international superstar in the days when Ireland didn't have many of those. In the bleak years of the 70s and 80s and the pandemic of emigration and unemployment, his world-class performances lit a shining beacon in which we could dream. Perhaps Ireland could dine at the top table of international sport. He's an Olympian, a world record holder, a world champion indoors and out. You could say that this chairman of the boards was and is a trailblazer. And he's here today, Eamon Coughlin. How are you? Gary, I'm very well and thank you very much for having me. Uh, Eamon, uh, the first question I, I really want to ask you is how do you feel being asked the same questions over and over again about your illustrious and glorious career? I don't really mind. I give different answers all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Never the truth. But yeah, no, it's something you learn to uh, cope with, I suppose, all your life. You know, you mentioned the World Championships in 1983 and we'll go back to that, I'm sure, later on. But uh, I don't think there has been a, a day in my life that has gone by without somebody making reference. Hey, Coughlin, what did you say to the Russian? <laughs> yeah. When you clenched your fists and you waved to the crowd and you went by. And at first, first of all, I didn't wave to the crowd. But um, yeah, it's uh, always nice to uh, be able to have a little bit of a conversation about the past, the present and, yeah. and the future. Uh, I remember that day well because, as you probably know, there was a, a concert you two were headlining in the Phoenix Park. Uh, Simple Minds are playing the Eurythmics and so on, 14th of August, uh, 83. Three. Yeah. Uh, and Sunday, it was a Sunday. And Dave Fanning came on stage and he was about to introduce a band. But before he introduced the band, he announced that you had just won the world championship. Uh, uh, and it was like it was this really added to the day U2's performance was helped by you I have to say yeah uh, well I guess it's like any other iconic moment in Irish sports you know uh, whether it's um, Kerry beating Dublin yesterday <laughs> or no I shouldn't have said that actually because right. we're doing it yeah we'll come back to that I'll so I'll start that again yeah just so Dave Fanning announces that you have just won the world championship there's a massive massive cheer it added to the day and to you two's performance for sure yeah i guess it was really great high that day in the phoenix park as well as in crow park i believe they announced it there but it's not something that i'd even be aware of was going on i wasn't sure what kind of attention there was in the event but i do know having lost the Olympics in 1976 and again in 1980, finishing fourth. That's the difference between coming an Olympian or Olympic medalist, by the way, when mm. you're introduced. Uh, but uh, I, I was aware that there was a great amount of expectation, but I didn't realise the hype uh, that was going on that particular day in the Phoenix Park, where I did all my training, and for that matter, Crow Park and many, many other places. And there's actually a very funny story about my mum in Cooley Road, Lord of Mercy, on her. She passed away a few years ago, but she was so nervous for the final that she decided that she was going to get down to the local church, Our Lady of Good Counsel in Drimna. She went in there to say a prayer. She didn't even want to watch the race. And as she said her prayers, uh, she got this feeling, well, maybe it's over now, I go home. And uh, she got her timing wrong because as she passed, I think it was Mr. Kennedy's house, which was about seven or eight doors from us. She heard this wonderful cheer coming out the windows and the doors, a hot day, windows and doors were open, shouting, Cockney's after duty, that's the word of the world championships. That's how my mother found out that day. So I guess there was a huge amount of hype back then because there were very few, I suppose, Irish men and women uh, on the international sports scene mm. um, competing at that level and that's why so many Irish people were proud of our sports and we're always very 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 proud and emotional when people uh, excel at the highest level in the world right through to this day uh, I do have to ask you I suppose and you've been asked this uh, 
uh, about the Russian Dmitriev when you passed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a moment of sheer and unbelievable joy, mm-hmm. I think. And everybody was with you at that moment. This wasn't a gloating gesture. This mm-hmm. was uh, it just I finally, I finally done it. It must be amazing when you when you come around the bend in the on the home straight, and you know you have somebody. <laughs> that must be so. Uh, I don't know. Empowering. You are a master of the universe. I suppose empowering or empowerment is the right description uh, of what happened that particular day, but. You know, when I did clench my fists with sheer joy, it was a moment of fulfillment or thanksgiving. Because when you do finish fourth twice mm. in the Olympics, it's a pain in the ass. It's an yes. awful place to have to finish, uh, have to endure when you know that you can beat these guys anyhow, when you know them inside out. And when things just don't happen on the day, like you screw up tactics or you get sick in the second Olympic Games, it's such, such a disappointment that you just go into your own little shell and people don't understand the disappointment that's really in that. But, you know, life moves on uh, for sure. And I never dwelled on those even to this day, despite the fact that I remember being really pissed off. But when it came to the World Championships, I got everything right, both physically and mentally. Mm. From the point of view, I didn't overtrain. From the point of view, I didn't get sick. From the point of view, I was fresh. And from the point of view, I had won a lot of races that year. I had uh, beaten nearly everybody. Everybody. I didn't lose, I don't think, that, that, that year. And when I went to the World Championships, I just said to myself, I'm not going to win the semifinals I'm, or, the fi- or the heats. I'm not going to win the semifinals. I'm just going to keep everything in reserve for the final. And when it came to the night before the final, I was at the fit, just coming off the last turn with all the lads in the Irish team who were cheering on Mary Decker winning the 3,000 metres and all the other races that were going on that night. And my agent at the time, Brad, said to me, hey, Eamon, what's the plan tomorrow? And I go, I'm going to make one move. See that spot down there? I'm waiting till that last turn. Mm-hmm. So the next day, for the first eight laps of the 12 and a half lap race, I just sat at the back of the field, at the back of the field. I minded my own business, but I kept an eye on what was going on up front. And I can visually remember Thomas Wessinghagel from West Germany, who I expected to be the favorite, wasn't making any move with three laps to go and with two laps to go. And then I said, that's it. I'm now a miler. I'm not a 5,000 meter runner. I'm a miler. Nobody can beat me over the mile in this race. So I got into contention. I caught up with a Russian with just over a lap to go and I sat and I sat and I sat because I knew what how way I could kick. I knew I was fresh and I knew this was going to be my moment because nobody was going with me. And at that very spot I had indicated the night before, I looked in the middle face and I clenched my fist and I said, thank God, thank God I got it for you guys. You guys meeting my dad, my coach Jumbo Elliott, my coach Jerry Farnan, who, who had sadly passed away deceased, during the preceding yeah. two years or so, who really always instilled confidence and belief uh, in me. Um, so that was that moment, uh, which I've been asked about all the time. But that was genuinely not a gesture of arrogance or cockiness. That was a prayer of thanksgiving. Yeah, no, I knew that. And, and there was, yeah. it, was, it was quite clear the, the, the gesture, the intention of it. It's all about intention, yeah. really, isn't it? You yeah. know, and that's... Yeah. Um, it's it's fascinating. You you basically turned a five thousand meter race into a fifteen hundred meter race by saying or a mile into race. a mile, yeah, yeah. Into a that's mile. really interesting. And people Where, don't realize the last mile of that race was under four minutes. Yes, yeah, they, they don't realize that it was relatively slow. It was one in thirteen twenty six. People say, "Oh, that's slow." Yeah, but the last mile was four minutes, <laughs> yeah. uh, which you. Which you were well used to doing because you'd already... I'd run 349. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and 350. Lots of, lots of low 350 miles. As far back I'd as run. May 75. Oh, I yeah, see. that's spot on. My first yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, Kingston, Jamaica, 1975. I ran against Philbert Bailly and uh, Marty LaQuarrie, who was a college mate of mine. Though he had graduated, he was training at Villanova with us on and off. And Marty was the real star of American track and field, number one miler in the world, I think, two or three years before that. Um, but having trained with Marty, all of a sudden I began to think, hey, he's just like me, I'm going to beat this guy someday. And anyhow, in Jamaica in 1975, uh, having only run a sub four minute mile the previous week, my first one ever, around 356, I got invited to Jamaica 
And uh, I decided now I'm going to go after Baye. I'm going to try and beat Baye. Because I used to really grow up with learning to win races rather than run fast times. Mm. And I was always of the belief that your fast times will come with your wins. So there's no point in running, you know, a, 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 a 351 mile and finishing second. I want to run a 351 mile or whatever and finish first. Mm. So that day going in with that psychological, I suppose, um, ability to really focus on winning. Um, I went after Baye and I ran him all the way pretty much to the wire with about, well, not to the wire, but with about 100 meters to go when I just hadn't got the strength. My legs began to wobble, but I went over the line in third. LaCourie just got me on the line and I ran 353.3 to break the European record. So that was the start really of my international career and when I began to be recognized in Ireland as being a world contender. Like to put that into perspective for people who, who are uh, listening, um, running, if you were to run, if most people were to run a seven minute mile, they would feel like they were absolutely tearing along. I once ran a seven minute mile when I was a younger man and I, I, I felt like I was sprinting, right? let alone something that's nearly half that time. It must be. I mean, it, it must be a pretty exhausting uh, uh, discipline, the 50 minutes. Yeah, well, all disciplines, you know, whether it's the marathon now and running nearly two minutes flat uh, to 10,000 metres or the 1,500 metres or the mile. Um, and if you try and make a little bit of a, 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 you know, equate it with, say, sprinting, like you're saying, it must be all out sprinting. Well, if you take Usain Bolt, you know, he's running 9.7, you know, um, or the fastest guys in the world, 10 seconds flat. Or thereabouts for 100 meters. Well, we're going 12, 13 seconds. Yeah. Four, you know, so it's, but well, we're keeping that up for yeah, six, 16 yeah, times. Yeah. 16 times without no, stopping. But that's all to do with putting 100 miles a week in, Gary, you know, week after week, month after month. You're resting, you're strength, you're yeah. conditioning, you're interval work, you're repetitive quarters, you're doing them in 60, 60, 60, 60, or you're told to do them in 58, you do them 58, 58, 58. So it's a built in clock that you have in your brain and in your body that allows you to be able to maintain that pace throughout. Yeah, and also body type. I mean, you are fundamentally skinny, uh, a, a, a svelte man. <laughs> um, skinny. Uh, I'm light. I'm light. Yeah. yeah. Light so, bones. Yeah. Light bones. Yeah. But uh, what gives people, by the way, their uh, specific um, athletic prowess? You know, uh, so for you, a middle distance runner, um, and for, you know, Hussein Bolt or whoever else, uh, uh, they're very, very powerful men, and so on. What, 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 what defines it? What gives people the the the, the suitability for certain? Well, I guess it's your entire physiology and your physique, mm. um, your muscle structure, your bone structure, heavy bones, light bones, fast twitch fibers, slow twitch fiber. Fast twitch fiber are the guys who are the sprinters because they can sprint. Slow twitch fibers are the guys who can go long distance continuously without tiring. But when it comes to a sprint, they need fast twitch fibers mm. thereafter when it comes to the end of the race. So that's the difference, you know, uh, your engine, your heart and your lungs, uh, your mind, uh, your belief in yourself, your training, all of that is is required. They're all the various ingredients, but you can't replace it with, you know, hard work, hard work, hard work. But I was fortunate enough that I had the slow switch fibers to allow me to run even up to marathon distances, which I did run when I retired as a professional runner, uh, all the way down to even 400, 800 meters. Um, I was able to do all of that. But the best part for me was that I was able to let allow those fast twitch fibers kick in off the last turn. Yeah. Kick in with 200 to go, kick in with 50 to go. Um, they were always kind of there, um, well, when I was in good shape. Uh, so I was lucky enough to have that uh, combination of fast and slow switch fibers. Uh, and you, you raced in the 1500 and the 5000 meters, which mm. is quite, is that quite unusual or? No, that was again my body type. Yeah, you know, okay. you take a guy like Sebastian Coe, two times Olympic champion. Mm. Uh, Seb uh, couldn't really go that well over 5,000 metres and he even found it difficult to go over 3,000 metres. Steve Ovet, again, 800, 1,500, but he couldn't go that way, you know, 5,000 metres or even up to 10,000 metres. I could go up to the 10,000 metres and ran pretty fast o over that distance. But then on the other hand, those lads could go and run 45 seconds for 400 metres. I couldn't. Mm. I've got the ability to do that. So again, you have your, your, your 400, 800 guy, then you've got your 800, 1500 meter guy. And then when you get a guy that can go from 800 meters all the way through to 10,000 meters, you got somebody really, really good then. That's the thoroughbred. Uh, okay. Because you've got the range. 
Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Who are your heroes? He, In my sport? Yeah. Of athletics? Well, I'd have to... Well, you go back to Ronnie Delaney. Well, of course, you know, Ronnie. I like, know. You know. Who, by the I way, I interviewed, yeah. and he said to me, he didn't think particularly about times either. He yeah. thought about winning. Yeah. <laughs> Ronnie's yeah. a winning man, isn't yeah. he? Sadly, I was only a little baby when Ronnie won his Olympic gold medal, but because of my love of the sport and my interest in the sport and reading the history of the sport, obviously knowing Ronnie Delaney without knowing what he really, really achieved in terms of visually seeing it, um, I had huge respect for him. But when I became seriously interested and television was allowed us to do it, uh, Peter Snell from New Zealand yeah. would have been my big hero. Mm. Uh, three Olympic gold medals uh, he won and sadly passed away uh, a year and a half or so ago. And there were many greats. But as I then came from being a teenager into my early 20s and John Walker came on the scene mm. from New Zealand, John became my real hero and idol. I loved John Walker and coincidentally became great friends with John Walker to this very day. And by the way, he was the one that kicked my ass in the Olympic I final know. in 1976 I, in too. Montreal, yeah. But, he, uh, you know, yeah. I had lo lots of great, great, great heroes as a kid growing up okay let's go there now and we'll just get it out of the way 76 what happened uh you were obviously hotly hot, hot tip certainly get a medal i didn't know anything about athletics <laughs> but but i was told that i was i was training for home, home farm football club at that time and and there were everyone was talking about you know this race and i didn't even know what was going on and then i watched it that night and you came forth and it was agonizing for 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 you and for the country what what happened I lost. <laughs> I finished fourth. How I, do you? I read the Bible the night before. The Lord said, "Come forth." So I came forth. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, that happened to me. Uh, I just got tactics wrong, to be honest with you, Gary. I uh, had run, fin just came off my college career where I went undefeated. Um, I had that uh, cocky kick, which. Brother Perkins and Drimnick Castle used to uh, call it the cocky kick. Let's see the cocky kick. So I was always dependent on that. However. I won the heats and showed my cards. I won the semi-final and showed my cards around 3.38 in probably both of them there or about. Fast races, two days in a row. Then we had a rest day. And the night before the final, my coach, Jerry Farnan, said to me, hey, Eamon, um, what's the plan tomorrow? And I go, I'm just going to sit behind Walker all the way. And he says, that's it. I don't need to talk anymore. So the next morning, we didn't have mobile phones in those days. I speak to Jumbo. I'm in the Olympic Village and the phone rang and it was Jumbo. And when Jumbo was nervous, he stuttered in an awful lot. He used to say things like, goddamn Irishman, I want you to live like a clock. Get up at the same time, eat at the same time, train at the same time, goddamn go to bed at the same time, and goddamn shit at the same time. Everything came in a stutter, he used to when he spoke. So that morning, Jumbo was nervous. This is our champ. This did a lot of fast half-milers in the race. I go, what do you mean? He says, Walker, Van Damme. Rick Walhuller, so they couldn't run 143, 144, you're a 147 guy. And I go, well, yeah. And he says, so, so if the pace is slow, oh, 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 you know, take, 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 take the speed out of him, take it out of him, you've the strength, you've the strength. So that was it, I banked it. And then I went to the uh, Olympic uh, final in the bus all the way over and Guy Drew from France who won Guy the 110 Drew, meter that, hurdles. Yeah. Here he is smoking a cigarette on the bus over to the Olympic final. And I'm go. like, give me a drag. Oh, well, I was so nervous going to the Olympic <laughs> final. So then during the warm up, I look around and Walker's warming up and he looks great and Van Damme looks great. And all of a sudden, Wallhooder is there, and I began to think, oh, Janie, Mac, what am I going to do? How am I going to beat these guys, you know? I just, the fear of failure just came into mm. me. Anyhow, the gun goes off, and I took in right behind John Walker for the first 400 meters. And uh, 
I might have been in about seventh or eighth position, and uh, John might have been in whatever seventh or sixth position. But I was just cruising right behind John. It was grand, and we went through then the first quarter in a pedestrian sixty-two seconds. You could hear them calling out 61, 62. Something clicked. I don't blame Jumbo. I always blame myself because I'm the one who has to run the race, not my coach, me. So I'll emphasize that. But something clicked, and I went from being in that position all the way down the back straight over the next 100 meters, only whatever, 500 into the race now, um, into the lead. And as soon as I got into the lead, I just continued on. But I continued on worrying about what's going on behind me. Where's Walker, you know? Had you and run from the front before in big races? Yeah, against guys I knew I could beat. Mm. Difference. Mm. No, you know you can beat Walker. You're hoping you can beat Walker. You're hoping you can beat Van Damme. But this is an Olympic final. And in an Olympic final, a lot of mad things happen to people's heads. You can be the very, 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 very best in the world, the fastest in the world. You can beat everybody, no matter what the sport is. But when it comes to an Olympic final, there's something different about it. Mm. It plays games, havoc with your head. And it played havoc with my head when I went into the lead. And over the next two laps, it's like they're not going by me. And then when Walker tried to go by me, I'm holding him off on the inside, making him run wide. Coming onto the back straight now with 300 meters to go, I'm holding him wide. And then going down, I can still remember it every step of the run. Uh, Walker goes by me. And when he went by me, I tried to go with him. And I was going with him, but yeah. I, was, I wasn't cruising. I wasn't just comfy. Was the kick there? No. The kick wasn't there when it came to the final 100 meters. Mm. And that's when... Van Damme had gone by with 150 to go. And then I begin to move wide at that 100 meter mark to try and go by Van Damme and Walker on the, out onto the third lane, I think I went. And I ran, but I wasn't catching them. I and mean, we were all running at the same pace over the last 30, 20, 15 yards. And on the inside with 15 yards to go or less, uh, Van Damme, it wasn't Van Damme, uh, the, the German, um, oh God, name escapes me right now, uh, just slipped by on the inside. So the bottom line was, I just ran a stupid tactical race and didn't run the kind of races that I had run all my life from the time I learned to kick. Yeah, uh, that must have been a real head melt for you because you'd gone out with a, a plan in your head to mm. do, to sit behind, mm. and then some. Then it changed. Mm. And that must be like psychologically a very difficult thing to uh, process and make okay in your own head when you're running in that level of pressure, mm. right? Uh, I mean, ha has it as a matter of what would you say to an athlete who went out, who, got, who found themselves in a situation where this isn't working the way I thought it was going to work and I've got to reassess instantaneously? Like, what's the protocol? How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I what really are you don't know. What would well, you, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty vision. Uh, I suppose again, I was only a, a young kid coming out of uh, college in in the states. My first real venture into the onto the world scene, a new plateau for me, a new level, which required a new level of of thinking. Um, so I, I chose to go into the lead, and I was the one who should have mm. taken responsibility of really putting it up to them. But again, it's an Olympic final. Um, what could I have done? Uh, I could have uh, realized after 400 meters now, there's nobody going to go by me. So I'm going to drop back here now and get into my comfortable position, which is running in the middle of the pack or in mm. third place or in fourth place and then saving my kick uh, for you. But it's a depletion of mental energy. The worry of mm. I shouldn't be here causes you to physically decline believe it or not so the physical depletion of energy uh, when it came to kicking on the final 100 meters I didn't have because no. that energy was wasted whereas you come fresh mentally into the last turn where you are going to make that kick it'll, it'll, it'll just work like a switch yeah. once you've done the work so in 1980 then uh, there was a different issue yeah I was you, sick as a dog you had food poisoning is that right I don't know what I had. It was a combination. All I know is it was coming out both ends, right? And I had I had run seven races in eight days. I'd won seven races in eight days. And uh, four of them were heats of the eight and the 1500 meters in the national championships and the final of the of the eight and the 15th the next day. And in hindsight, that was stupid. I should have just won one race and saved my energy as well because the Olympics were in two weeks time. But I again was trying to mimic uh, running three fast 1500 meter races in the Olympic final. So I needed a really hard weekend of running 
to let my mind and my body know what it's going to endure, you know. So that's why I did that. But um, when it came then after the national championships the next day, I'll never forget it. It was the 8th of July, the day after my wife's birthday, because hers is the 7th of July when the championships are on. I was sick as a dog. We were supposed to go out for, for dinner and uh, I couldn't eat. Oh, I was just all over the place. So I went to the park, met my coach, Jerry Farnan, told him what was wrong. And he goes, "Uh oh, that's it. You're not training today. So then he said, right, let's go figure out what we do. So I went to the doctor. She said that I had um, uh, one doctor said uh, he up in Castlenock area that I had a flu symptom. And then I went to the Olympic doctor and she said that I had uh, a bad bug. All right. In there from a bit of food poisoning. Um, but I would never really be sure what it was. So for the following whatever week, I stayed at home convalescing. I couldn't even go for a jog. I was watching the Olympics on television and I was making just uh, my exit to uh, Moscow literally 48 hours before the race was due. I didn't want to go there too soon because of what was going on in Moscow at the time. But when I got there, I just wasn't well at all. Mm. Wasn't well. I remember I, I did a workout with the late Jerry Kernan. Uh, we tried to break uh, eight minutes for 3,000 meters in a workout, which should have come easy for me. You know, people think nowadays that eight minutes is fast uh, in a race, let alone in a workout. And sure, I struggled to break eight minutes. So I knew I just was really, really, really weak. And that was an example of overtraining. It's mm. hard to get the balance right in your preparation mm. because sometimes you can, you know, be successful and yeah, you take it nice and handy, you rest on your laurels or sometimes you win and then you want to do even more. So I chose to do more uh, and I went up to running 110, 115, 120 miles a week. I was racing at the time. Again, trying to train to fit 3,000 meter, three 5,000 meter races in over a period of four or five days, which is not even heard of in the Olympics nowadays. They only do two. But anyhow, uh, as a result, I overtrained. And as I overtrained, like a fine-tuned uh, Ferrari racing car, if there's a little screw loose, it ain't going to perform. And I had a pretty bad screw loose, as well as a stress fracture in my shin, by the way, which I didn't even know until after the games. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I finished fourth that day. Um, didn't even think I'd make it to the final, which I did. And when it came to the last lap, I just hadn't got the energy to be able to chase down Yifter. Mm. And um, unfortunately, deja vu. So, it, but it, it, presumably psychologically, it wasn't quite as quite as tough or as much of a disappointment as the first time on the basis that you yeah. knew you weren't well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, I, you know, when I look back uh, again, I learned from finishing forward. It yeah. fucking made me want to keep <laughs> on going till I, to, to, to get to win the World Championships, which had been talked about happening, you know, a couple of years down the road to try to go after other goals like running under 350 for a mile or going for one American miles. That drove me on and on because I had so much belief in my ability mm. that the disappointment of finishing forward just wasn't something I said, that's it, I'm quitting, good luck, I'm gone. No, it drove me on. Uh, and in all of this, much like Ronnie Delaney, you were a huge indoor sensation mm. in America. Mm. Uh, in, you know, as I say, for, for the interviews, you know, used to see you on, uh, you know, at Madison Square Garden. Anything that's had Madison Square Garden, and it just sounded so incredibly exciting. I was like, this is like Ali place. This is like a John F. Kennedy kind of territory. <laughs> um, the Wanamaker Mile, um, as well, uh, you won seven of them. Mm -hmm. That was a huge race. Yeah, it still it is. is a huge, yeah, it's a prestigious race. Yeah, race. yeah mm -hmm. one of the oldest indoors uh, miles um, in the world. Um, but the American indoor, North American indoor, because it extended all the way up into Canada, it was almost like a huge, big uh, rock tour. Going from arena to arena. Yeah. yeah. Madison Square Garden, 20,000 people. The sports arena in San Diego, 17,000 people. Up in Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto or Vancouver or the Edmonton or yeah. Dallas. Yeah. And every city in America, Chicago, I could name them all, Cleveland, they had all beautiful indoor basketball arenas yeah. where they put 11 lap to the mile tracks uh, in. And going back to the early part of the 1900s, you know, uh, particularly the Wanamaker Mile and Madison Square Garden, that was like the the the, the Broadway uh, mm. of New York. This mm. the track and field, you're on Broadway, you're on the stage, and people used to come in their tuxedos, you know, in the early mid uh, 1900s, right through into the 50s, and it was really really dapper. And even to this day, the officials wear the tuxedos. So. Uh, 
all the people track and field was a huge huge sport used to gather for Madison Square Garden mm. and I was really fortunate of and privileged and honoured to even this day to be very 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 much part of that and to have led the way uh, for so many years it was just phenomenal phenomenal um, sport at the time and sadly they're not in any arenas in the United States anymore they're all gone well, why is that? the sport changed uh, the sport became professional um, the World Athletics, which, which it's known as now, the IAAF, the International Amateur Athletic Federation, frowned upon us if we were getting entertainment payments to pay for our expenses or if you were helping to put 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden and most of them were Irish cheering on Coughlin, they didn't, weren't too happy with uh, athletes getting paid. So it changed. And the reason it changed was because now they realized how big indoor running was. Now they wanted to uh, increase the participation of indoor sports all around Europe mm. uh, and because they saw the value in this. So they decided to go on with the World Championships, the first ever in Indianapolis in 1987. And as a result of that, the eight lap to the mile, the 220 indoor tracks or the 200 meter indoor tracks became standardized tracks. 400 meters outdoors, 200 meters indoors. So when they became standardized, um, there were qualifying times for world championships. So you had to get your qualifying time on an eight lane track or an eight lap uh, to the mile track, standard track. And as a result of that, um, uh, most of the big athletes didn't really want to run an 11 lap to the mile in Madison Square Garden. The college athletes didn't want to run an 11 lap to the mile. They wanted to run on that to qualify for their national championships. And um, at the time, there was a little bit of a lull Dell in, in the stars. Coughlin had disappeared off the scene. Steve Scott, John Walker, Philbert Bailly, Rod Dixon, Vessinghage, you know, by all of great, great names uh, of Mary Decker, all the great ladies that were out there too at the time running had disappeared. It was a lull. And when there was a lull, the participation of spectators decreased from 20,000 in the garden to 7,000 in the mm, garden. Right. Like, wow, how can you sustain, you know, mm. the finance to put that meeting on? So slowly but surely, they all just disappeared and disappeared and disappeared off the face of the earth. They weren't getting sponsor money. They weren't getting television money. And uh, the focus became on the eight lap uh, tracks instead. How, how come you were, well, not so much how come you were so good, you were so good because you were so good, but... You particularly excelled in the in the indoors mm. uh, in America. Mm -hmm. uh, was it the wood? Was it the corners? Was it the air? Loved them, yeah. I loved them. But when you say I particularly excelled, I don't mean to be smart when I came back. I won everything outdoors. I just lost the Olympics. Oh, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> you know but you know what I mean. No, but you know what I mean. All the Grand Prix around Europe and everything, but I was known as an indoor miler, and I respect that. But the very first um, year... I was in Villanova. Uh, the boards that we trained on were outdoors and they were would have been installed or put up usually around the latter part of November. And that first November I was out there, it was all excitement waiting for the boards. We used to hear it about the training that was on the boards. And this particular November morning, there was snow on the ground and the boards had been um, put up. And uh, I snuck out to have a look to see what the boards were like when they were complete and in my just regular street shoes and my jeans I ran around the boards and I loved them mm. I felt like I was a Ferrari racing car going around those tight turns what did they feel and, like well what? they were there was a soft bounce uh, from the board if there was a loose board you could go right through it even you could break it um, in the winter there'd be snow on the boards and ice on the boards we'd have to clean the boards off um, it was just literally 11 laps to the mile it was a very slight bank on them and um, it was the turn, the mm. feeling I got, like a little car racing car going around those tight turns. I used to lower my shoulder and rip around them. And I enjoyed that particular feeling. So how did I develop a love for them? When I did then get to train on the boards uh, with all the guys in Villanova, day after day, we do one lappers, two lappers, three lappers, three lappers, two lappers, one lappers. You'd be going around 21, 21, 21. You just learn to run the times and the boards and the turns and the boards. And as one of my mates who recently wrote a book about the Villanova track team said, if you learned to run on the boards, you could run anywhere. Oh, really? And there were some guys who couldn't run on the boards. And as a result, they weren't able to run even that good outdoors. They just weren't able to, to do it. But if you learned to run the boards, because you trained really, really hard and was consistent lapping and timing and getting everything right there. But I just loved that feel. Loved that feeling. Absolutely 
you know, I felt it more indoors mm. than outdoors, you know, to come back to your original question. Well, it's very intimate you indoors. Well, particularly at, in the garden or in any of the arenas in the, in the States because the people in the front seats are literally, you know, a yard away from the outside lane of, of the track. So you can feel them, you can hear them, you can sense their energy. Um, you know, when, for example, I might be at the back, Ray Flynn used to always say this to me, and Ray's still Irish, Ireland's mile record holder 40 years this week uh, since he ran 349.77. But anyhow, when we used to talk about Madison Square Garden or for that fact, anywhere in a and I'd be in the race Ray might be in first or second place and with a lap or two to go if I decided to make my move from the middle of the pack and I go on the outside he says Eamon there was always an incredible change and I go what do you mean well you'd hear the crowd going but when you'd make it you would go from (laughs) you could sense that so you could read the crowd um on, in the arena is better indoors than you could outdoors and again that intimacy me was something that I really you loved. could work off the, yeah. the energy of that yeah. yeah yeah it was great yeah I always loved the, the colour of the boards they're kind of these beigey yeah, they, colours that didn't exist in this country yeah. again they only exist on American television that's where right. this Irish guy was yeah. that's not possible that's right um, now, uh, going back, by the way, way back to, you grew up in Drimna, is that right? That's right, yeah. And you, you were family with Brian Kerr, isn't Yeah, it? Brian, he was in 93, Cooley Road. I was 110. We lived literally just across the street from one another. We're the same age, uh, maybe only about four months in the difference mm. between our ages. But my mother, Kathleen, and his mom, Margaret, were the best friends. Mm. And uh, we they used to walk us, push us up and down in the pram, up to the mm. shops or whatever we had to go, down to the church or whatever we go. And uh, we grew up from the time we were infants all the way through to secondary school when Brian headed off to uh, James Street CBS and I went to Drimna Castle CBS. But we played soccer together. We yeah. played Gaelic. Brian was in the running club with me yeah. in Celtic. Yeah, we were around uh, together for quite a few years and still are great friends to this day. And I presume he was a competitive man. You were both competitive with each other, I presume. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? That's what was great about growing up in Drimna. And at the back of Brian's house uh, on Dramard Road was... The field. Yeah. We hung out in the field, right beside the children's hospital in Crumlin, right? But which is really in Drimna. But having said that, we hung out there. And I remember all the lads, you know, uh, used to congregate there from early morning to late at night. And we played soccer and Gaelic mm-hmm. and cricket. We'd have running races. We'd be tossing the coin. We'd be playing lamp ball, soccer, you know. Brian, that's your lamp, the silver one, and the wooden one is mine. And we used to have competitions. Even if it was only the two of us, you'd be up there trying to oh, get a goal by hitting the silver lamp and he'd try and get the goal hitting the wooden lamp. And we did that for hours and hours. But you had to be tough to be able to participate in sports. And if you weren't getting picked, you know, and you'd pick the team, you know, seven aside, right? Okay, I pick Coughlin, I pick Kerr, mm. I pick... If you didn't get picked by one of the lads, he didn't think you were good. So it was always up to you to really play well in order to get picked by the older boys on the team. <laughs> It was, it was a it was a kind of a good uh, learning sort of zone for for what it was like. Yeah, ah, yeah, it was it's all tough. outdoors, all gone, and then you'd have some couriers coming down from Crumlin. Mm. And Jesus, they'd chase you out of the field <laughs> on Dramard Road, and you'd run for your life, or you get into a bit of trouble with the other guys, and you'd run for your life. I remember being chased, God, <laughs> an awful lot by guys. But the beauty was. They couldn't catch me. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I became a runner. (laughs) Yeah, what about Brian? Did they catch Brian? Uh, Yeah, he got away. (laughs) I'd say Brian could talk his way out of a situation uh, as well. You probably could too. Um, Yeah, that's the thing about sport growing up. I always found that people who lived beside clubs, whatever they were, uh, soccer clubs, scar clubs, um, tennis clubs, cricket clubs, they seemed to have a different relationship with the sport. Uh, Some of them inevitably were extremely good. Uh, and even the ones, members of the family who weren't that good, they seem to have some knowledge, some know-how, as if this, this whatever it was, was an extension of their own living room. Mm. That's one of the things mm. that, that, that it gives you. But, but this toughness for sport, the mental acuity and just the, 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 the kind of the sheer balls you have to have, you, they obviously came naturally enough to you. It doesn't come natural. Um, you have to work on it. There might be a certain natural tendency there, all right, but you, you got to work on it. You got to work on it all the time. And how do you work on it all the time? In training. And when you're in training and you're out running with the guys doing 10 miles or 15 miles or 20 miles and they're hammering you out, 
you know, they're testing you. It takes a lot of discipline and balls to stay with them. Or if you're on the track doing your 400 meter repeats, 20 of them in 58 seconds, by the end, you're going to hang in there really mentally tough because there's times you just want to quit after 15 and get out of there. And the guys are saying, no, come on, you got to do another one. Or in a race, whether it's Madison Square Garden, with all the work that you've done, you could be lapping around after two laps of 11 laps of the mile race and go, oh, I feel awful here. You go into the third lap. Oh, shit, I don't feel really good here. Oh, maybe I'll, m- maybe I'll twist my left foot on the little inf- inside uh, curb and go over and get the hell out of here. Got to switch from that mental attitude to say, this is what I trained my ass for. Keep going. You'll settle down. You've got to constantly remind yourself of that in order to be mentally tough. Do you, you must have a good nose then for when you're looking at younger athletes or whoever in any sport. You must have a nose for mm-hmm. who's got toughness. Yeah, it's very, 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 uh, you know, like Aidan O'Brien, the great trainer, horse yeah. trainer. I used to talk to him about um, horse training and so forth in his business. And I'd ask him, like, how do you know the horse is going to win the race? How do you know, you know, how the horse is going to be good and so forth? And he says, well, you've got your physical attributes and you've got your mental attributes. He says the most important mental attribute is the temperament temperament so when i be looking at young athletes you can see huge talent in them but it always comes down then to what's their temperament really 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 like um so you've got to have a really good temperament and you've also got to have that physical ability to be able to do it and then you look at some of the younger athletes and you see some of the mistakes they're making uh, they might be overtraining and they might be trying to go for the big stuff all the time all the time instead of realizing you know hey there's a bit of maturity to be done here over the next three or four or five years don't be in a hurry because I've seen too many great junior champions, European champions here in Ireland, uh, winning medals, but they never, ever went on to be able to fulfill their potential. Um, some other athletes, too, you have a look when they go to major championships and people say, oh, did they have a chance of winning? Well, hold on. Uh, what's the win-loss record? Mm. If there's a lot of losses in there, you know, and very infrequent wins, there's not much of a chance of them winning at major championships at all. So I'd have a pretty good eye for it, all right. Uh, away from uh, from athletics sorry I'll rephrase that I dropped my pen it's the second time I've dropped my pen I'm not picking it up again anyway um, when you retired Mm -hmm. your final Olympics was 88 correct Uh, so you you were happy to compete Uh, you weren't going to win but you were happy to to go and say goodbye which is quite a it says quite a lot about you in a way to the you didn't just have to go and be yeah. the biggest thing. You had to go and just do it one more time, right? You know, it was at a stage. I was punch drunk. I was what, 35 years of age at that stage. Um, all the young African lads from Ethiopia and Kenya were really coming onto the scene mm. big time there now. And they were a lot younger than I was. But I was kind of, uh, as I say, long in the tooth, punch drunk. But I wanted to, you know, just give it one more shot. Mm. There's always one more shot uh, at it. There's always one race in you, Jumbo would say, uh, to try and encourage you. And for me, after 1983, I missed LA uh, the following year because I had stress fractures in both chins, again, overtraining. I went on and won a few more Wanamaker miles and whatever, broke the world record in In 87. In 87. Yeah. And then when it came to 88, I wasn't really going well at all. I'd been, again, dealing with an old weary body with a few aches and pains and my lower back and so forth. But I barely qualified for 88 in Seoul and I decided I wanted to go there just to see it out, just to see it out. Because my great dear, dear friend, Fanon McSweeney, he was a 400 meter runner. Fanon had been suffering from multiple myeloma and I had been attacked by a dog the previous year or so. And who was in the hospital when I went in to be cared for was Fanon McSweeney. And Fanon was saying, come on, Eamon, one more, one more Olympics. Got one back, go to Seoul, go to Seoul. So I went to Seoul. Even though I'd only barely qualified, I was lucky to be even picked by the uh, by the Olympic Council of Ireland at the time. But and that's another story. However, I went there and I got from the heats into the semi final. And when I came from the semi final, I went out the back door. But I didn't go out with a regret. I went out thinking, well, at least I gave it a shot. And if it's not to be, it's not to be. And I pretty much walked away from the uh, sport and retired at that stage. And did you find retirement? Difficult letting go or were you at a stage where you were just happy to let go? Uh, I was at a stage where I was unfulfilled. I was at a stage where I was happy to let it go. And I was at a stage where there was crisis in my life and I decided to come back. Really? What sort of crisis? Yeah. 
Well, the crisis was I came home to live in Ireland with Yvonne and my four kids now, having lived in America the preceding, whatever, 15 years and nearly 20 between college and uh, the Athletics Federation, the BLE at the time, were looking for a new CEO. They never had one before. And for two years they were looking. So the Minister for Sport at the time got word that Cockler was going back to live in Ireland. The great Noel Carroll told them, you should mm. ask Eamon if he's interested in get, taking the role as the CEO. So when the Minister got word that I was coming back, he rang me the day after I went back to America because um, I came home in preparation for a return. And uh, the Minister said, I believe you're... Um, coming home, would you be interested in the job in the BLE? And I go, well, yeah. Well, good, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. So headlines in the bloody newspaper the next day, Cochrane, big headlines in the back of the Herald or the press, wherever it was, 100,000 euro or pound job for Cochrane. Well, from the very, very beginning of that episode, um, I was an impingement upon the democratic process. They didn't want me in there or whatever. But as naive as I was, I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I was coming home to live in Ireland. I knew I had my home. I knew I had everything organized. There was no problem there. I wasn't going to retire uh, poor, at least. Anyhow, I stuck with it over the course of the next couple of months, and I got the job in January of that year. Well, for the six, next six months, it was like hell. Just politics after politics after politics after politics. Um, I got really hurt big time um, by a lot of the stuff that was going on. And it came down to a stage where I was frightened going into meetings. No, but I had to deal. Oh, yeah, I don't want to go into any details or into any names, but it was frightening. And so, um, very heavy stuff then. Sure was. Oh, yeah, very, very heavy. I thought I was going to do myself in at times because I couldn't deal with it. So, I decided then when they had asked me to write to Frank O'Hara, to John Tracy, and to Marcus O'Sullivan and John Doherty, who hadn't paid their 10% from their earnings, which you're supposed to do at the mm. time, that I was to suspend them and they weren't allowed, threatened them not to go to the World Championships, which were going to take place in Seoul. And I'm trying to say, oh, these are our shop windows. These are the guys we want to promote the sport. These are my friends. I'm not going to write to them and tell them this. You do it yourself. Now, Cockney, you get out of here. You do what you're, your father would be ashamed of you. Are you what you were doing there? And I'm like, hold on a second, guys. So anyhow, the next day, I decided it was on a Friday that I'm going to write a letter and resign. I went to my solicitor. I composed a one paragraph letter, put it in the post on that bank holiday Friday. And whew, the relief of the world, you know, it was great off my shoulders. And uh, I quit. I gave it up. And that was it. Uh, gone. But I decided then, what am I going to do now? I'm going to go back to do what I do best. I was going to go back and live in America and I was going to go train for the Masters sub four minute mile that people were talking about mm. it at the time. So, um, you uh, over 40, you were the fastest over. I was the first person ever over, over 40, 40 to run under the, four minutes yeah, for the mile. Minutes, yeah. And when I did quit that particular job, um, Michael Hawkshaw from the Children's Medical Research Foundation in Crumlin, I was on their board in New York doing voluntary work and putting on events all over the States. Fortunate enough, my name, my my status, my celebrity status, yeah. the Irishness, Eamon Coughlin, um, Michael took advantage of that and we became great friends and we went to San Francisco and we went to Los Angeles and we went to Philadelphia and New York and Boston and Bermuda. We went to different places and we put on fundraising tournaments mm. for the Children's Hospital in Crumlin. And I did that as a volunteer. So when I decided to give up and go back to America after my episode in the BLE. Um, Michael came to me and says, Eamon, you come work for us. And I go, well, what do you mean? And he says, come on, there's a job. You know what we're about. We know what you're about. We make a great team. And I said, no, Michael, I'm going back to live in America. Can't stand it over here. So he took Yvonne and I out to dinner with his wife, Mary. And over the course of dinner, he says to Yvonne, well, Yvonne, tell me, what do you think now of Eamon coming to work with us starting next week? <laughs> <laughs> and I look at him, Michael, what are you talking about? No, it's Yvonne's turn of the apple pie he's here. She stayed with you in America. It's time for you to stay with her now in Ireland. This is where she wanted to come and live. So anyhow, I said to Michael, I'll tell you what, I'll do it. I'll stay at home. I'll work. But 
we don't promote the fact that I'm going to be working for you. I'll just go in, do my job like everybody else on the team. So I started off and worked there for 17 years, still on the board today in New York, but I worked there as director of fundraising and development and um, with the team in the foundation, uh, with the volunteers around the country and around the world. I worked with them, not just as a celebrity, which helped them to open up doors, but we had to deliver on our fundraising mm. targets year after year after year after year. Mm. It was very, very hard work, but it was the most pleasurable work uh, that I ever ever did and uh, thank God I made that decision to, to stay at home because um, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else only here. It sounds like a job a match made in heaven really. Yeah it was really you know there were times I thought maybe I should be doing something else with myself but no I loved every bit of the satisfaction of yeah. uh, coming up with ideas implementing them and seeing the success you know whether it's trying to we, we were went from two and a half million pounds to 13 million euro when it turned over to the euro we were building buildings providing equipment uh, uh, the Children's National Research Centre which it's called today um, is we raised millions for that and it's world renowned for its paediatric medical research it's in the loop with all the other research centres in the world and while I used to get a clap on the back at these events well done you're a great man for crumbling name and I go hold on a second now look at the researchers look at the doctors look at the nurses they're the ones who are the superstars they're <coughs> the ones I'm only happy that we're able to help raise funds through the volunteers uh, to be able to do that but yeah it's great and I'm still doing it on a voluntary basis to this day I remember uh, a number of years ago uh, my then agent put out an email saying you know, for comedians or people, whatever, to go and uh, do a Christmas visit to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> the ward walk. To, to, to Crumlin. And um, I, I went, but I, God help these children, they're so sick. But uh, I, I felt, these kids don't have a clue who I am. <laughs> I'm making their life worse. It's bad enough already. And the parent, the parents kind of, the parents yeah. did... But but I was some like Ronan Keating and other people were there and they yeah. they all knew they all knew obviously who he was and other people but it was really, really funny. I eventually said to some kid he was he was fifteen and sixteen he wasn't well and he says to me I said yeah I'm, I'm okay he goes yeah I know who you are <laughs> very funny yeah. he was he was kind of almost feeling sorry for me um, but yeah when you when you witness the inside of those those places mm -hmm. you, the 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 importance of what you absolutely uh, fundraising makes you appreciate yeah your is, is health so, and your wealth is so, yeah. is so massive yeah. you also were involved in uh, fundraising for Villanova as well were you or for Irish athletes going to Villanova or was there some involvement that you had there uh, you know over the years there'd be uh, opportunities you know that Villanova would come to you and yeah. see if you could help out but um, yeah we'd, we'd help out at Villanova wherever possible both in the States and in Ireland not an awful lot though and you yeah. became um, a senator as well yeah, yeah. I mean one would have thought the moment you had in politics uh, with the BLE might have might have been enough for you but uh, what was being a senator like? Well I found out that there's more politics in athletics than there is politics in politics. Okay can I ask you this question and I know sorry I know you don't really want to go into it and I, I, I understand that and I'm not an investigative journalist here but how was the politics so heavy? When you were in the BLE, how does it get that? Well, it's the same. It's the same in most organizations. The politics is, uh, you know, very, 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 very deep. Even look at the IABA, the Irish, I'd say, Amateur Boxing Association, mm. not Athletic Association. But anyhow, the politics is going on in there. It's rife. The politics is rife. Um, I just wasn't able to deal with the politics. I was naive. I was young. I was coming back from America where mm. everybody were clapping you on the back. What can we do for you, Eamon? Great man. You're a good guy to come on back over to Ireland. What can we do to screw you? So... I learned a lot. However, when Enda Kennedy nom Enda Kennedy Enda, Enda Kenny yeah. nominated me for the um, position as senator, I was in disbelief when he called, and I said, "When long do I have to decide?" You know, and he said, "Well, I'm going to the news later on tonight with all my nominees." And I go, "Well, okay, I accept, sir. Thank you very much." But um, it was a fantastic experience in there. And it made me really appreciate how difficult politics is, how difficult it is to get on a ticket, how difficult it is to go through an election, whether it's a councillor or whether it's uh, going for the Senate or whether it's going for the TD. It gave me a good flavour of, you know, what it's like behind the scenes. Um, and it also gave me good respect for the for politicians, to be honest with you, because of what they have to endure. Mm. Uh, 
I also found out that it's a real testing ground for you. It's okay for a guy coming in as a TD and trying to do his thing. It's a bit different for a guy like me from being a celebrity runner and now to be a senator. All of a sudden, again, you're in imposition. Like, uh, we had to work our ass off to get elected in here. And you just kind of got, you know, parachuted in. Mm. Um, so I knew to be a little bit of enviousness there and jealousy there. I also knew how difficult it was going to be to cross various roadblocks and so forth to get something. But my whole attitude there was, I'm going to enjoy this moment, however long it's going to be. I'm not going to take it home with me ever. And I didn't allow that. But it allowed me really appreciate how difficult it is, a life in politics. Uh, and when I look back on, on what it was like, I look back with fondness rather than no regrets whatsoever. It was a brilliant, brilliant experience. And with the whole advent of physical education in schools, with the whole emphasis now really on kids um, in, in sports and so forth, I'd like to think I was very part and parcel of that wheel, that mechanism that allowed more, um, I suppose, exposure of the importance of health and wellness and fitness in school and generally uh, diet and so forth I was part of that cog I wasn't going to change it overnight I realised that and any time people try to stop me in my tracks I go well okay well that's what they're there to do it for but don't let it offend you keep on going and are you still involved in uh, no. athletics? Oh, in athletics? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not involved in athletics. I'm not involved in politics. <laughs> um, I'm not really involved in athletics anymore. I did it up to about four years ago when my son John and Anthony Leggio and a few other lads were training and guys from different individuals might come and join the group and I would work with them. Um, but then it came time for, well, like I can't keep doing this, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays and Sundays and going to races and watching everything. I had more interests uh, with golf and other small yeah. hobbies that I'd like to do. And I just felt now was the time to kind of step back and let others in our athletics club, uh, MSB, AC here in Dublin, uh, take over the reins. I was president of the club for 27 years. So I just decided to pass over the reins. My only involvement now would be I would help, help get a few quid for some of the guys that are uh, looking for support. Uh, I would help mentoring. I'd go to some of the workouts for them. Uh, I'd get calls from some athletes who are thinking about going to America uh, asking for advice on that kind of stuff so I'd go to some of the events but I'm not entrenched in the middle of the whole coaching uh, side of things at all anymore uh, Was it something you enjoyed though? Were, were, were oh you, yeah Were you good at, at getting the best out of people and putting them Oh yeah. Well, they had to be prepared. They had to be prepared for, for for work. Some of them were never going to make even winning national championship level. Some were had aspirations to go to the Olympics and did, uh, and worked them towards that. Uh, some had aspirations to be national championships and became national champions. Some had aspirations to go to American scholarship and went to America. So I would have been part of that journey, and I would have instilled in them the importance of of training, the importance of consistency and the importance of rest and the importance of, as Jumbo used to say, goddamn Irish man, I want you to run like a horse. What do you mean, Jumbo? I want you to run like a horse. You, you, you just do the, do the thinking and, and then, and then, and then, no, sorry, I'll do that again. You just do the running and, and, and I'll do the thinking. In other words, I get the guys not to be thinking too much about what they're doing. Step back. I know David Gillick, actually. I was in Celebrity mm. MasterChef for David Gillick, which he won. Yeah. Um, and you won, got the feeling of a guy, I'm not surprised he won, because he was kind of used to the idea of winning. Yeah. Uh, and uh, nice fella. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, he did represent Ireland. Yeah, David, two-time European indoor 400-meter champion, uh, sixth in the World Championships uh, in a difficult event, mm. you know, uh, with all these fantastic uh, 400 meter runners around the world, particularly from the United States. So he was in a tough, tough event. But yeah, David, real winner. All right. And uh, the fact that he had those culinary skills, I think, allowed him to be able to go on Celebrity Chef and win. Um, I got calls over the years, Gary, you go, oh, would you come on Celebrity Chef or this, that, the other? And, yeah, okay. And he won't say, what do you mean? Okay. You can't even cook an egg. You're not going on that. Don't be such a hypocrite. You're not going on Celebrity Chef. Well, so, I decided Yvonne was right. I wasn't going to risk it for a biscuit. <laughs> I told them that I couldn't cook and uh, they got back to me twice. I told them I couldn't cook either time or both three times, I think. And they still asked me to go on it. So I said, right, the signing on fee was about three grand. So I said, you know what? For three grand, I'm going to go and cook a shit meal. 
<laughs> so I did. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I got my money and said, thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're nearly out of time. Um, and it's been fantastic and really interesting talking to you. Uh, one one final question. I mean, have you, have you, are you at peace with yourself? Have you oh, sure. done everything you wanted to do? And uh, Oh, well, you always aspire to be doing different things. I sure do. I'm trying to become a single handicapper and golfer at this stage of my life. So I aspire to that. Uh, but am I at peace with myself in terms of what? My career in athletics? Just oh, you. Fan. Just you as a Oh, man. yeah, 100%. You seem to be. I'm 100%. I'm having fun. I've uh, My wife and I, were at home, happy. And the kids, are, thank God, are doing well. I've got two in America. Eamon's a teaching professional golfer. Uh, Michael works in the entertainment business in, in, in L.A. John is a Garda here in, in, in Dublin. And Suzanne's married with three lovely children. And uh, Eamon has two in Texas. And so we've got five grandchildren. And uh, yeah, you know, I don't have to chase it anymore gary oh, that's that's um, that's very uh, uh profound not have to chase i'm still working uh time wise not an awful lot but i'm still involved at work but you know i just don't have to chase it anymore i'd love to get to that place uh um and maybe maybe one day i will uh, not having to chase it it's been fantastic talking to you and thank you very much for being on the gary cook podcast delighted to be here with you thank you Why have regular eye tests at Specsavers? Well, they can help reveal health issues like diabetes and high blood pressure. Book an appointment online today.